Well, good morning. An activity-filled service. To set the context for today's passage, I'd like to read the concluding passages from Romans 5 as they have significance and carry over to Romans 6. Starting in 5.18, Paul writes, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a statement of Paul's doctrine of salvation by grace. Paul's simplest statement of that doctrine can be found in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where he wrote, For grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace is unwarranted favor. It's receiving a benefit that we did not deserve or avoiding a consequence that we did deserve. It's the opposite of justice, which is receiving the rightful consequences of our actions. Immediately after proclaiming this doctrine, Paul deals with the opposition that he faced concerning this doctrine, and that is today's passage. In Romans 6, 1 through 4, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is probably being asked this question rhetorically. The challenge comes from Jews who are quibbling with Paul's doctrine of salvation by grace by attempting to take it to its absurd logical conclusion. That is, that if grace abounds even more, Let's continue to sin to continue to experience grace. So grace is unwarranted favor, and this concept is second nature to most of us as followers of Christ. But it's not so easily accepted by many. Last fall, several of us attended a gathering of Christians and Jews in which we endeavored to study the sacred scriptures together. One evening, we studied a passage from Romans about the prodigal son. You know the story. The prodigal son asked his father to give him his inheritance early. He runs away with that inheritance and squanders it on loose living. Once he is broke, he returns to his father 
and the father welcomes him with open arms and throws a lavish party to celebrate the return of his prodigal son. The Jewish people at our table were having a hard time accepting the fact that the father so lovingly accepted his wayward son. I knew that there was a simple explanation that would help them with their quandary. So I I explained to them that the father was exhibiting grace. Now, in Christian circles, that would have abruptly ended any doubt and been accepted as the ultimate solution to the agenda, to the dilemma. But not so that evening. Our Jewish friends did not have the same warm and fuzzy feeling about grace as we Christians do. It offended their sense of justice, and they let me know that the son did not deserve to be forgiven so easily. I can only imagine that Paul faced the same resistance as he preached his doctrine of salvation by grace. Certainly for those who have a high sense of justice, it would be easy to go to the logical conclusion that Paul was saying that sin no longer mattered if it were so easily forgiven. So why not just continue in sin and let grace abound? Paul turns the table on this challenge by proposing that the followers of Christ have undergone a profound change in who they are. Last week, Steve Fowle described that profound change. He stated that in Romans 6, Paul is talking about our passage from the dominion of sin to the kingdom of God. Sin not being the occasional moral slip-ups that we have from time to time, Steve said Paul refers to those as transgressions. But rather, sin is that force that seeks to control God's creation and defeats God's plan for his creation. N.T. Wright says that Paul is describing here the movement from one type of humanity to another, and that other type of humanity is the genuine humanity consistent with God's original creative intent, that is, true humanity. Here in Romans 6, Paul ties this change in status to baptism. Let's talk about baptism and particularly what it symbolizes here in this passage. Baptizo is the Greek word that is translated as baptism. It literally means to immerse. It comes from the root word bapto, which means to dip or to dye. In ancient times, a tunic maker would identify their tunics by the color of the cloth that they used. The process by which the color, the cloth was colored was to dip it or to bapto it into a dye solution. And the result would be that the cloth would now be identified with that tunic maker. The dipping resulted in a change in identity. This is why we have chosen to follow the tradition of baptism here at New Hope. As that time when a person who wants to make a public proclamation of their choice to be identified with Christ, and we follow the tradition of immersion baptism to symbolize that identification with Christ. Today, we celebrated the dedication of a child. That was a choice 
that the parents made on behalf of that child. In August, we held a baptism ceremony at the Hall's home. Weather drove the ceremony inside, and we were unable to use immersion as we typically do. But the people who were baptized were making a proclamation in front of the body and their loved ones that they wanted to be identified with Christ. In fact, when Kristen Lefebvre shared her testimony as she was baptized, she actually said, I am in the water today, not because I've never been baptized, but because I've never made an individual profession of faith. So here I go. I choose Christ. She went on to say, I believe that trusting God, following Christ, and relying on the Holy Spirit is the only way to live. A life of faith is all or nothing, and I am all in. I think Kristen had an accurate sense of the significance of what she was doing that day. Here in Romans 6, Paul also says that baptism ties the believer to Christ's victory over death. The immersion symbolizes our identity with his burial, and the resurfacing identifies us with his resurrection. Just as Christ's burial and resurrection defeated death and thus frees us from the consequences of sin, baptism is an outward sign that marks our freedom from the dominion of sin that Steve Fowle described last week. Baptism here has other significance as well. N.T. Wright believes that here in Romans 6, Paul is using an exodus motif. In the exodus, Israel went from slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea, ultimately into freedom in the promised land. Here, Paul is talking about moving from slavery under the dominion of sin through the waters of baptism into the kingdom of God and freedom from sin. So baptism reminds us of God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel in the Exodus. As we have said, this movement into the kingdom of God and freedom from the dominion of sin and, in essence, into true humanity is a change in our status. One commentator observed, living in accordance with a changed status requires that you recognize it and take steps to bring your actual life into line with the person you have become. As a young man, I went from being a single man to being a married man through the exchange of vows with Ruth. It was a change in status, and I had to conform my life after that in line with that change. There were new benefits and responsibilities that were associated with me being a married man. I had to take steps to bring my life into line with being a husband. Likewise, when I chose to follow Christ in 1980 and was baptized shortly thereafter, I had to recognize the benefits and responsibilities of my changed status and bring my life in line with that new status as a citizen in the kingdom of God. So what about you? Have you been baptized? If so, 
have you thought about its significance? Maybe this passage can give you a renewed sense of the significance of that decision that you made. Do you realize that you were changed from citizenship and are now a citizen of the kingdom of God and free of the dominion of sin? What is the significance of that in how you live your life this week? If you have not been baptized, is it time to do so? Is it time that you made a public proclamation of your choice to be identified with Christ and in Christ alone? We'll have another baptism this coming summer. Maybe now is the time for you to make that public declaration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Romans. We want to be identified with Christ. We want to live as citizens in your kingdom. We want to live as true humans as you intended when you created us. We are thankful that Christ defeated death and the consequences of sin, and we can now be free from the dominion of sin. We thank you for baptism as a right which carries so much meaning for us. Help us this week to be living consistently with this changed status as citizens of the kingdom of God. All to your glory. Amen.